0: Christchurch, New Malden, 25th April 2021. Nathan Larkin speaking on Beside Sea Shores. It's hard to believe that it's April already. Lockdown restrictions are continuing to ease. Shops and restaurants are open again. Many of the people that we have been most concerned for in the past year are now getting their second dose of the vaccine, and with it, a renewed sense of optimism. In fact, from next week, as you'll have heard, we're hoping to be able to go back to having one service happening live on a Sunday again. In many ways, we're starting to look forward. And if we are honest, many of us might be feeling tempted to throw most of the last year in a bit in the bin and never look back on it. But difficult as it has been, it's now part of our history. If we decide that we are only going to think about our successes and the good times then we end up denying a large part of our reality. Reflecting on things that have gone wrong doesn't have to be an exclusively negative thing anyway. It's how we learn lessons and grow and adapt. One of my favourite illustrators is a guy called Oliver Jeffers. When he was in art college almost 20 years ago, he started a series of drawings after accidentally getting a coffee ring on a clean sheet of good drawing paper. At first he was tempted to throw the spoiled paper out, but being a poor student, he couldn't bring himself to do it, so he instead decided to transform the coffee stain into all sorts of creations, which are lots of fun and would never have ended up in his collection had he just thrown his mistake in the bin. The truth is, restoration is something that really resonates with us. You can hardly flick through your TV channels these days without stumbling across shows that are centred around this theme. Whether it's cars, homes, furniture, antiques, we love a good restoration project. But whatever it is that captures our imagination, we are really drawn to these stories of unloved, unused, broken and seemingly finished with items being restored and given a new lease of life and in many ways I believe that is exactly what is happening in today's appearance of Jesus after his resurrection. As we look at this story of Jesus encountering Peter and his disciples by the seashore, we are reminded that God is the great restorer, that there is no person so broken and damaged, no situation so shattered, that God can't rework the shards into some new mercy. It's such a beautiful story of grace and compassion and loving kindness and John crafts the story so well and through it we have so much to learn about who we are and who Jesus is to us. Bit by bit Jesus is restoring his disciples, showering them with love and care and attention, restoring them to their former beauty and loving them through the process Jesus reveals himself again to the disciples, this time by the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for Lake Galilee. And it's quite significant that the disciples were fishing on Lake Galilee, because it shows us that since the crucifixion, and in fact even since the appearance of Christ to them the last time, the disciples seem to have gone home, gone back to their previous lives and jobs. Lake Galilee was about 80 miles from Jerusalem, and that's where Jesus had appeared to them. The disciples had travelled 80 miles home in between these appearances. That was no short distance in those days. So, in many ways, I think they seem rudderless, unsure of themselves, and perhaps they're even returning to what they knew best. And so, when Jesus appears to his disciples, he is appearing to broken and vulnerable men, who had no sense of hope for the future. Disciples, who perhaps are a little like us at times, desperately in need of a fresh start with God, desperately in need of finding value and worth and a sense of identity, to know that they are loved and that their lives are worth something. This appearance happens at the crack of dawn. Jesus stands on the beach, but the disciples don't recognise him. And then the interaction between them begins. One of the most beautiful interactions in Scripture, I think. An amazing conversation that shows the absolute grace of God. And as is often the case with John's accounts in his Gospel, every word really matters. And so I want to go through the conversation in some detail to really get to the heart of what is happening here. Jesus begins the conversation in verse 5. Children, you have no fish, do you? The word Jesus uses to address them is children. What a beautifully intimate way to address his disciples. He doesn't call them men or friends or brothers. He calls them children. He knows how weak and vulnerable they're feeling. He knows how much they're hurting. He knows how much they need to be met with love. And so he calls them his children an indication of the depth of love and sense of protection he has over them. Jesus is restoring them. The disciples had been out all night, but they'd caught nothing. And this is what they were supposed to be good at. This is what they knew best. I can just imagine their mood. If we can't even catch fish, then what good are we at all? But then Jesus tells them, ...that if they put their nets down on the other side of the boat, they will catch fish there. And sure enough, when they follow Jesus' instructions, their nets fill up. And in this very act again, Jesus is showing them how much he loves them and wants to forgive everything they have done. Because this story may remind you of an earlier encounter, recorded in Luke 5... ...where Jesus is standing on the shore after another night of unsuccessful fishing... And he says to Peter and his colleagues, Push the boat out further to the deep water, and you and your partners let down your nets for a catch. And when they do, they catch so many fish their nets are about to break. And what was that encounter we are being reminded of from Luke 5? It was the very first calling of the disciples to follow Jesus. If we are reminded of this previous event, then you can bet the disciples were experiencing some serious déjà vu as well. So here is Jesus meeting the disciples after all their failure during Passion Week, after they have run away, after they have given up hope and gone back to their old lives. Here is Jesus meeting with them in the same way he met with them on day one, doing the same thing that introduced them to him at the beginning. And it's as if he is saying, Don't you remember how it was before all this mess happened? It can be like that again. Let's start afresh. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's start again together. I forgive you and I am still calling you, but this time to something new. Such a beautiful act of grace and mercy. Jesus is restoring them. It's at this point that John recognises Jesus and he shouts, It's the Lord! Simon Peter, ever the impetuous disciple, tucks his fisherman's smock into his belt and swims to shore to see Jesus, leaving the other disciples with the hard work of actually getting the boat back safely to land. This is the Peter we have come to expect. Jumps in head first, so sure of himself, sometimes acting and speaking before he thinks. But when the disciples get back to land, they find a much less confident Peter. A Peter who is perhaps having to face up to the memories of all of his confident proclamations. I will never let harm come to you, Jesus. I would never abandon you. I will die before any of that happens. And I can imagine, as he recalls them, All of his bluster and confidence drips away. I imagine him looking at Jesus and being confronted with the reality of what actually happened. His words were confident, but his actions couldn't live up to them. But I think that here we see a beautiful detail that reveals the depth of Jesus' restorative love. We're told in verse 9 that the disciples find Jesus and Peter sitting together round a charcoal fire. The last time that Jesus and Peter had been together near a charcoal fire was in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas on Monday Thursday. It was that night that Jesus was being tried. In Luke 22 we are told that Peter sat by that charcoal fire in the courtyard while Jesus is being interrogated and Peter denies knowing Jesus. And when the cock crowed, in verse 61, we find those damning words. The Lord turned round and looked straight at Peter. But here they are again, sitting together by a fire, and Jesus again is looking straight at Peter. But this time there is no element of judgment in his eyes. He sits and looks at Peter with nothing but compassion and loving kindness. Jesus is restoring him. And then Jesus says to him, bring some of the fish you've just caught. It's another beautiful act of compassion, because Jesus has already got fish on the fire, cooking away. Why don't they just eat that? Perhaps in their shame, the disciples were thinking that they had nothing to offer Jesus. They had nothing that Jesus could ever need. He doesn't need them. But Jesus says, no, I want to eat your fish. I value what you have caught. I value what you have to bring me. By accepting the disciples' fish, Jesus is saying that they do have value and worth. Whatever little quantity they can offer, it is enough for him. Jesus is restoring them. Then Jesus looks at Simon Peter and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these others do? He uses Simon's full name and title, Simon, son of John. Now that's interesting because in my experience, full names are only ever used in one of two ways. The first is when we're in trouble. Even now, when our daughter Emily has done something wrong, I find myself saying, Emily, Grace, Larkin, come here. The full name is used when we're in trouble. And maybe Peter thinks that he is in trouble here when Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, son of John. But a full name is also used when we're about to make a covenant, a commitment or a vow. When an important relational contract is about to be formed. So, for example, when Anna and I got married, our vows were made using our full names. Perhaps in this story, by using his full name, Simon, son of John, Peter is not in trouble, but is about to be commissioned for something important. Peter has nothing to fear, because Jesus is restoring him. Now, let's look at the detail of the questions that Jesus asks him. In Greek, there are a few different words for love. In English, we only have the one word. But in Greek, each of these words are different and have different meanings. And in this passage, there are two different versions of the word love being used. One is agape, which indicates the love of deep fellowship, complete union, the deepest and most profound type of love there is. And the second word is phileo, which indicates brotherly love, deep friendship. Agape is the kind of love that we find at the heart of God. It's the word that is used in 1 John when we are told that God is love. God is agape. Now, the big key to understanding agape is to realize that it can be known from the action it prompts. We're often accustomed to thinking of love as a feeling But that's not necessarily the case with agape love. Agape is love because of what it does, not because of how it feels. God so loved agape that he gave his son. The point is that agape love is not simply an impulse generated from feelings. Rather, agape love is an exercise of the will, a deliberate choice. But the other word for love that we see here is phileo, which means a deep friendship, to have a special interest in someone or something, to have affection for. It would probably be helpful if phileo were never translated love in the New Testament, because it refers to a strong liking or a strong friendship. Of course we see how phileo gets translated love, because in modern culture we say we love all sorts of things that we strongly like. I love ice cream. I love my car. I love the way your hair looks. But the word phileo does imply a strong emotional connection, and therefore it's used as the kind of love or deep friendship between friends. But the difference between agape and phileo becomes very clear in this interaction between Peter and Jesus by the charcoal fire. In verse 15, Jesus asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And the word Jesus uses is agape. Do you love me with a total and utter commitment? Are we in absolute union together? Jesus was asking Peter if he loved him with the love of God, a love that may require sacrifice. And Peter replies, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. But the word that Peter has replied with is phileo. Peter was still feeling the sting of having denied Jesus. It's almost as if a new, less cocky, more humble Peter was saying, Jesus, I I do love you. To be honest, the way I betrayed you and ran away shows that I must only love you like a brother, not as I should. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, That's okay. Feed my sheep. Jesus is restoring him. Then in verse 16, Jesus does the same thing again. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Agape, again. Simon, aren't you the one who through the years has promised to never leave me? Aren't you the one who has always promised to live and die for me? Are you saying that you don't have agape love for me? But again, Peter is confronted by his own weakness and frailty. And he says to Jesus, You know I love you. Phileo love. Brotherly love. I'm sorry, Lord. I have tried and I have failed. I do love you, I really do, but I can't live up to my own words. I know I bragged about my loyalty. I know I thought I was the epitome of discipleship. But at the end of the day, I can't live up to my own standards. And Jesus says, that's okay. Do the best you can. Feed my sheep. Jesus is restoring him. And then a third time, Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But this time Jesus uses the word phileo himself. He comes to Peter's level and asks, Are you a true friend, phileo? You say you have brotherly love for me, but what kind of a brother betrays his kinsman? What kind of a brother denies even knowing him? What kind of a brother runs away to save his own skin? Do you really have brotherly love for me? And it was this third question that seems to have really got to Peter. Perhaps it was the repetition. Perhaps the third question by this charcoal fire transported him back to his third betrayal of Jesus when he really needed him. Perhaps it was finally clicking what Jesus was asking him. Even his claim that he had brotherly love couldn't allow him to avoid facing up to the depth of his sin and betrayal. And so Peter replies, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And again, it's phileo love, which Peter uses here. You know, I think that each of us, when we really face the truth of our own hearts and lives, stand with Peter at this moment. We look at Jesus and we sense him looking at us and we say, Lord, I want to love. I really, really want to do what is right. I want to serve you. My intentions are good, honestly, but I am weak and frail and I get it wrong so often. I let you down. I mess up. I betray you. My best is just not good enough. But please, no, Lord, in my heart of hearts, despite my behaviour, I really do love you. The love I have for you is not what you deserve, but it's the best I can offer. And you know, the wonderful thing is that just like with Peter, Jesus looks straight back at us. He looks us in the eye and he says to us, that's okay. The best you have to offer is good enough for me. I love you, I forgive you, and I want to be with you. Today, Jesus is restoring us as well. He doesn't want us to dwell on all of the ways we feel. Nor does he want us to pretend that everything is fine as it is either. But Jesus wants to meet us in our brokenness, with all of our failure and fragility, and he wants to restore us to tell us that we are loved and that he would never give up on us, that we are his great restoration project, a work in progress. And as Jesus restores us, he asks only one thing of us, take care of my sheep, love one another, take care of one another, forgive one another, have compassion on one another. Show kindness and tolerance and patience towards one another. Share hospitality with one another. That's all Jesus asks of us. After all of our sin and betrayal. After all our denying him in our thoughts and words and actions. After all the cowardice that we have shown through our lives in faith. After all our apathy and discipleship. After all that, Jesus meets with us today and he says... It's okay. I still love you. If you want to make it better, just love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is restoring us. And so we come to the very end of this beautiful encounter, his resurrection appearance by the seashore. An encounter through which Peter is restored. An encounter through which the disciples are restored. An encounter through which we have the assurance that Christ will restore us. And the closing words in verse 19 are this. Then Jesus said to him, follow me. Jesus finally brings Peter right back to the beginning. Right back to his original calling more than three years previously. On that day, Jesus had commissioned this fisherman with the words, follow me. And now, after all that has happened, all the drama of the three years following, the ups, the downs, the lows, the highs, the crowds, the healings, the raising of people from the dead, the adventures of faith and mission, the torture, the betrayal, the death, the burial, the resurrection. After all this, Jesus is back on the same shore of the same Lake Galilee, He is looking at that same fisherman called Simon and he is recommissioning that same fisherman with the same words. Follow me. Jesus has restored him. All has been put right in this moment of reconciliation and restoration. And that same offer stands for us today. Jesus has and will restore us. Our past sins and feelings have been forgiven and forgotten. This is a new moment, a new beginning. This is the grace and mercy and compassion and loving kindness of our God. Jesus restores us and he says again to each one of us today, follow me. Whether you accept his invitation is up to you.